Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at adces24.org. Hello, and welcome to ADCES's podcast, The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm Kirsten Yale, Research Manager at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. If you enjoy The Huddle, please take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. In today's episode, we talk about strategies to incorporate peer support in your practice. We'll discuss how you can utilize this tool to support the daily self-care for your clients. Sean Oser joins us to share his experience as a primary care physician and person living with type 1 diabetes. Sean, welcome to the huddle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, we are so glad to have you on for this conversation about peer support and its impact on people with diabetes. You know, I'm starting to see more research come out in this area, maybe because it's getting relatively easy to look at text analytics, but, you know, the outcome of peer support has such a humanistic impact on things like quality of life. And this is really where your perspective comes in and why I love talking with you. You have this really unique ability to look at this from multiple perspectives. So Before we get started talking about peer support, uh, I would love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Well, I'm Sean Oser. I have lived with type 1 diabetes for a little over 30 years at this point. It certainly wasn't something that I welcomed into my life at the time. But along the way, I've been able to do most of the things, if not all the things really, that I want to do personally, professionally. I became a family physician, uh, which I really enjoy doing now. I see patients uh, with a good part of my week, taking care of every condition you can imagine from birth until uh, end of life. And along the way, one of my daughters was uh, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes also, which came as a huge shock. And my wife and I really were, we had turned to look for where we could find some of the answers to some of the questions that we weren't getting from our daughter's healthcare team. That's really what turned us on to peer support. Yeah, I can imagine living with diabetes for over 30 years and now having a daughter that has to make you really empathetic to the people that you work with in your practice, right? Well, I certainly hope so. Uh, Many of them tell me that and that they appreciate the perspective, which is, uh, you know, something I've grown to pride myself on, even though I sort of accept it humbly and not always uh, openly, but it does seem to make a difference. And and being able to be a peer in addition to hopefully a doctor for for those patients has been, I think has been really useful. And that's, again, one of those things that really got us so interested in peer support when you're not at the doctor's office, when you, uh, of course, you know, living your life, you spend most of your time not at the doctor's office or not with your healthcare team and where you can get strength, where you can get support is so important. So, right, you need somebody besides just your your doctor or healthcare provider to have that empathetic ear and that listener. So how did you get involved in peer support? I was diagnosed with diabetes before I went to medical school. I was just starting college. I assumed that my doctor or my healthcare team and, and, you know, like the, the other team members at the office were the places to get information and to get my questions answered. This was before the internet really was a thing. And that was 
just about the only place to go. And, and as it continues to this day, I should say, even in 2021, to be where most people go, certainly lots of people are using the internet, but still about 80% of people trust their doctor or their doctor's office as the, as the place for healthcare information. So I was one of those people. That's where I thought you got it. And, and for the most part, that's true. What I didn't realize, not having been through medical training myself, was that you know, in, in medicine, we're trained on the, on the scientific parts. We're trained on the care delivery parts, the diagnostics, the exam, the, the management issues that, that we do as providers. But we're not trained as much on the self-care management things that are such a huge part of the life of a person with diabetes. There's so much of the management is on the person themselves or on their loved ones. If it's a child with diabetes, their, their parents or their other, their other caregivers are often the ones who are doing a lot of the self-management behaviors and required tasks. So I didn't recognize the difference as a patient that I could ask my doctor about insulin. I could ask about blood sugar checks. I could ask about blood sugar meters. They would give me answers in those cases, but what they didn't seem to be able to answer were some of my other questions. Some of the things about like moving more into to this age, now that I use an insulin pump, how to get it to stick better, or if I the, the infusion set, or if I use a continuous glucose monitor now, how to get the, the adhesive to stick. Um, going back to the earlier years when I was doing injections, how do I travel with my injections? And so they had general travel tips, but uh, you know how to navigate your way through airport security and things like that. But but where in my suitcase should I put it? Where's the best, but where's the safest place? And those were things that they'd never considered, of course, because they'd never had to live through it, except for a couple of my healthcare professionals along the way who also had diabetes. And they might have had different insights. And I realized then why their insights were different. I started to, but I just thought that there was something wrong with some of my other providers. And I kept on sort of bouncing from one to the next, looking for these answers. And it wasn't until our daughter was diagnosed and we found this really rich community of people who could give these answers that were so elusive that I had just stopped looking for the answers for myself. But for her, and I had new, her diabetes is not my diabetes. So it took me a while to realize that, but looking for things, tips and tricks and things like that to help take care of my young daughter was very different than how I knew to take care of it myself. And it turns out there are people who knew the answers and they're not the healthcare team. They were our peers. So that's a very long-winded way of saying that I think peer support is a lot of things. It can be about how to get the adhesive to stick better, but it can also be about, um, this turns out to be one of the most powerful things to me, is just knowing that I'm not alone, my wife's not alone, we're not alone as parents of our daughter, that I'm not alone as an adult with diabetes, that there are other people out there who are going through very similar things, which is not evident from sort of regular life. I'm not surrounded by those peers. So the advent of support groups in person was very helpful. So I was in a support group, actually helped start a support group in college with another student who had diabetes. And that was really helpful for us for a relatively short time while we were at college. And then online support has been just amazing. It's, it may not be as deep, it may not be as immersive, but it's a whole lot easier in some ways. You don't have to be limited by the few people who are around you in your community, for example, on a college campus. Or now in this very different time of 2020 into 2021 with COVID, when it's obviously more difficult and maybe inadvisable for people to be together anyway, the internet has been amazing in, in enabling distant connections even before COVID, but the, the support that you can get, um, that I've been able to get uh, more frequently really at any time from any of the different means of social media that might be available, whether it's a live chat or Zoom or FaceTime, something like that, or just reading someone else's blog. So they wrote it whenever they wrote it at some time, and then I read it at some other time, and then someone else comments on it at yet another time. And this narrative builds of the original post and then the comments and responses and things. And 
those people don't necessarily know that they're giving me support or each other support, right? You can read these things and really feel buoyed up by that feeling, like I mentioned, of not being alone, knowing that there's someone else who's going through this. And this sort of collective feeling is, is wonderful. And sometimes a comment on a posting that can be as simple as, thank you for posting this. Mm-hmm. Or again, I didn't realize it, was, it wasn't just me can be immensely supportive. And so there's, in my view, there's really a very broad range of types of peer support and what constitutes support. That was a beautiful explanation. And I love when, like how you got to the online piece because it is so much easier for people to access, you know, the online peer support. I mean, you know, maybe less scary or less barriers to get there, which brings me back a little bit to what you were talking about earlier you know, you didn't really know, like when you were first diagnosed, and it really was when your daughter was diagnosed with diabetes, that you really found this community. And it makes me think, you know, that's such a coping mechanism. How do we empower people to do this when they're diagnosed? Do they know or are providers saying anything? Because that is such a coping mechanism. And your explanation was, you know, really dead on, especially about these humanistic impacts. So how do we empower people to do this? That's a fabulous question. And I don't think there's one simple way, uh, unfortunately. As my wife and I got more immersed in this community or multiple communities, really, and started to really to value so highly the information and the support that we felt that we were getting, we really sort of looked around at, at our colleagues and our professional peers and, and wondered, if we feel there's so much value in this, how come we're not learning about this? in medical school, in nursing school, in any of our training programs, how come we're not learning about this in continuing education after we're done with school? Mm-hmm. And there was very little research on, especially online peer support at the time, there, there's a fair amount of research on peer support in general, both within diabetes and in plenty of other conditions. But there was this feeling, and we, we saw this in other people who were not healthcare professionals in, in these diabetes online communities, that it was like everybody drank the Kool-Aid who, who was there and everybody really believed in it so strongly and wanted to spread the wealth, as it were, and provide this resource for other people. But going back to where the healthcare team, the healthcare office is really where most people turn to for their support, it generally is not being brought up there. Some people were pretty progressive, I would say, healthcare providers and, and would recommend certain resources. But it, by and large, there was a very formative moment, I think, for me. Uh, when I was uh, listening to a panel discussion about online support. Again, it was all the panelists were professionals, and including researchers and clinicians, uh, behavioral health clinicians, medical, clinical care providers, family medicine, um, endocrinology. And uh, they said, well, there's this fear among the professionals that if you put people together without sort of monitoring or moderating the content that they might give each other really unsafe or bad advice. And they're really not qualified, of course, without the training to give each other medical advice that really has to be left to the people with the training and with the licensure and with the expertise, which I agree with that last part. But we sort of, I talked to my wife, she didn't attend that one. She's, I I didn't mention she's also a family doctor and, and we really have gone through so much of this journey together from medical school and on that we really need to do research into this. And the, the, the feeling of the panel of experts was that it would probably be very hard to get healthcare professionals on board unless there was good research, but that there probably wouldn't be much support for doing that kind of research. So my wife and I kind of looked at each other and we said, well, why don't we do that kind of research? And that's what we've done. So much to our 
surprise when we applied for a grant to NIH, um, to the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases, for a project idea that we had to analyze blogs of people with type 1 diabetes to look at some of this safety information, to sort of just look at what are they talking about, what kinds of things are, are they sharing, what, what, what do the people who write the blogs say, what kinds of things are they discussing, and what, what are the things that come up in comments. And we, we were gratified, I think, to find that there was almost no what we would consider unsafe uh, information shared or misinformation. And we really had a very broad definition of that. So we would consider any like medical or clinical advice given by someone who isn't known to be a qualified professional, we would just consider that in, in our study, we considered that, I think we use the bucket term medical misinformation. Mm-hmm. And there was almost none of that. More than anything, what was shared was that what I was talking about earlier, thank you for posting this. I'm so glad to learn I'm not the only one who's going through this. And then there was other advice, like about adhesives and swimming and sweating and working out and things like that, like uh, like I was discussing before, and where to store something in your suitcase or your backpack, how to navigate the airport. So the, the amount of actual clinical advice was nearly zero. And even what there was, it was almost always couched in terms of, but I'm not a medical professional, so make sure you ask your doctor, because this has worked for me, but it might not be right for you. Um, otherwise, there was exceedingly little sort of bad information. And it wasn't what I think healthcare providers usually fear, which is, you know, sort of ridiculous stuff. Like if I were to read that someone suggests that I drink nothing but lettuce juice and that will cure my diabetes, you know, um, actually someone not online, someone did say that to me uh, shortly after I was diagnosed with that. (laughs) I didn't believe it then either. So anyway, we found that that there was this overwhelming support, which we, we sort of suspected going in, but we wanted to approach it from a very objective and scientific perspective and see what was really there. So that was some of our, our earliest research was was on those blogs. And it's been an unbelievably enriching experience, but it's been our way, at least, of trying to bring that more into the mainstream, to publish that in the journals where healthcare providers read their information to see how, how helpful it can be, how it can be an extension of what the healthcare team can provide. Because after all, in healthcare, we're, we're just so used to being where people come, often looking for advice and for answers, that sometimes it can be hard to realize that we might have to tell people to go somewhere else for certain answers. Well, I think it's almost like painting a bigger picture of the face of healthcare is changing a little bit with because it's an information society. You know, it sounds like this is very practical, like peer support is very practical and it can leverage everybody's expertise and it can leverage the healthcare team's expertise and it can leverage the person with diabetes managing their stress level and their coping mechanisms. So how do we bring this into the office or maybe how have you brought this or incorporated this into your practice? Yeah, that's a great, great question. I think it's hard to approach, um, especially for someone who's, who's new at even thinking about doing this and directing patients to other resources. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're pretty accustomed to saying, oh, well, we, the healthcare system or the office has this set of information handouts or topics that we can attach to your visit summary in the electronic health record. But if it comes to going to other resources like online resources and you're not sure what their content is, that's much more challenging. And I think that's what really has people potentially uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So our advice usually has been to come up with a few, um, maybe just a couple trusted sources that you generally know to be safe and good and trustworthy 
there's a couple blogs uh, in particular that I might recommend to certain patients in certain circumstances. And the information is going to change. It's going to be updated, right? But it's, it's sort of like getting to know a writer. So if there's an author that you love and you like reading their novels and, and you read some of their early stuff, you can probably imagine that their next few books are going to be equally engaging and similar in tone, at least even if the story is different. So if you grow to trust a certain source, a certain blogger, for example, that can be really useful. But I think it can also be really powerful because the technology and the state of science and knowledge with the treatment of diabetes and everything, all, all of healthcare, all of society is changing so quickly that there's going to be new topics that do need to be covered. There's going to be new questions, new practical questions that still people aren't going to know. And that stuff hasn't been written yet. So if you know in general that there's a couple sources, a couple trusted sources, and if you can even almost you know have a handout on, I actually did develop a handout for myself and my wife at, well, we developed it together, but a couple handouts for, I mean, I'm sorry, a couple of resources, uh, links, for example, to sites that we trusted for parents of children with diabetes or for adults with diabetes or for significant others of adults with diabetes, then that can be really useful. That they, sometimes it's going to start with a society like the American Diabetes Association or JDRF or ADCES, any of those professional organizations that we know have good trusted resources, those all lean understandably and expectedly maybe towards the professional. And for some of those other more personal lived experience kinds of things, you might find links to some of these resources on those professional websites. But we included a couple and people really would tend to find that very helpful. Well, and hopefully the professional associations like ADCES can you know, help you guys get the word out on your research because that'll help more people access it and use it and change, maybe change the way they do practice or maybe introduce some of these peer support groups into the larger healthcare systems. Sean, I want to say thank you for coming and sharing. But before we leave, because I know we're getting close to the end here, I want to make sure we get a chance to talk about the value of peer support and hear your thoughts on that, because I think that's really important for our listeners to hear. Sure. I, you know, my peer support for me was, um, again, going back to when I didn't realize that I couldn't get all of the information from my doctors and that I thought there was something wrong with some of them, that they didn't know the answers to my questions. When I realized that it was available from peer support, I think is when I realized how important it is to keep that in my life. So I'm active with a few people who I met really online, who I now, it's not only online anymore, right? We see, well, mm -hmm. pre-COVID, we would see each other periodically. <laughs> And I cherish those experiences and always look forward to the next one. I really missed not being able to do that for the last year. And in between, we might text, we might talk on the phone, but I might also read their blogs. And their, the, the, the interconnectedness of what the internet has brought has really been amazing. But when I, I've said at some of the in-person meetups that I've had that I really feel like peer support has saved my life. I don't feel like I was approaching death in any way. I always felt healthy. I always felt like I was doing the things that I needed to do. But it really probably more accurately redirected my life and my attitude towards diabetes and, and my openness to new therapies, right? That I, for a long time, I didn't want to look different. I didn't want to be different. So I wanted to keep my diabetes relatively hidden. One exception was that I would never hesitate to inject insulin at a table. I would not excuse myself to the bathroom or anything like that. But that was very brief. And otherwise, I wanted it hidden. And when I would go and see a bunch of other people with diabetes altogether and realize that they were doing things that were much more advanced than I was doing because I sort of tuned out for a while after realizing that I wasn't getting my answers from my doctors, 
I delayed going on a pump for a long time because I didn't feel like it was important for me or right for me or whatever. And when I saw other people who could really explain it to me much better than either my doctor or my certified diabetes educator at the time, so that it didn't just feel like they were trying to sort of hammer one more thing at me to do, even though they did it very nicely and very softly. And when I said, no, I'm not ready for that, they said, okay, maybe we'll talk about it next time. <laughs> but it wasn't until I had that peer support experience that I really got to hear from them why they made the decision to do X, Y, or Z. And I listened to it in a different way. It just came from, it was like a different level of credibility. And I can't imagine not having that in my life as a person with diabetes. I can't imagine not having that in my daughter's life. And it's something I've been trying to obviously to, to bring to as many of my patients as possible, but hopefully to the world also in helping to advance the research around this. Well, I truly appreciate you sharing, and especially what I heard throughout this whole um, conversation was really the experience and the the human experience. And I think so many times, especially in this information age, we're trying to break things down into data and bits to help explain things. But really, this life is about being a human being, and that's about connection with others. And that's really what peer support is. So I truly appreciate that. So Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope we get a chance to talk with you again in the future and share your research. I would love that opportunity. And thank you so much for having me and for talking today. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. Today, we heard from Sean Oser and how he incorporates peer support into his primary care practice. Sean suggests finding a few sources of peer support you trust and sharing those with your clients. His research found that bad information is not as prevalent as many healthcare professionals think and communities often self-correct. He shared just how valuable peer support can be for parents, young adults, and anyone looking for a connection and real-life support. You can learn more about referring to peer support, the evidence behind it, and a few communities to consider on the ADCES website. Visit diabeteseducator.org forward slash peer support for HCP. Membership at ADCES gives you access to the education, networking, and resources to improve your practice and optimize outcomes for your clients. Find out what ADCES can do for you at diabeteseducator.org forward slash join. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.